Welcome to episode 62 of The Photo Show. Today my guests are Eve Biddle and Jeff Barnett-Winsby from The Wasaic Project. So first, let me thank Lucas Thorpe, former guest of the show, uh, for introducing me to Eve Biddle and the Wasaic Project at a panel discussion at the School of Visual Arts. And after hearing Eve speak, I really wanted to go up and visit. So a few weeks ago, I did. But before I get into this episode, let me just say that the Jen Davis show, 11 Years, is up for a few more days at the JKC Gallery. It comes down on the 22nd. Go to facebook.com forward slash JKC Gallery for more information. And the next show will be with Tony Chirinos, who will be showing his series of work he did on the tradition of cockfighting in San Andres, Colombia. And you'll hear more about that show once it goes up in March. So the Wasaic Project is located in the hamlet of Wasaic in upstate New York. It was founded by Bowie Zanino, Eve Biddle, and Jeff Barnett Winsby. And as you'll hear in this episode, the inspiration and the successes they've had with the Wasaic Project come from both, you know, happy and tragic circumstances, but they do include an encounter with some ghost hippies. And that will make more sense once you listen to the episode. But a good part of our conversation has to do with how you start something new in a community and become part of that community so that you're not seen as a kind of arrogant interloper who comes into town and says, I know what you need and I'm going to save your town. In fact, what you'll hear is how Eve and Jeff have remained open and responsive to the needs of the community, partnering with the community, as well as bringing in some great artists, putting on some fantastic events, of which you can find at thewasaicproject.org. So check them out. They're always looking for volunteers and people to participate in what they do, as well as some donations, if you have the funds available. But mostly they would just like you to visit and come see what they do. All right, everyone. Thanks as always for listening and we will talk soon. Kombucha is excellent. I'm, I'm yes. nervous about having too much. <laughs> There's trace alcohol in it. Does it? How long did it take to make? I don't know. Uh, is it like, like a fermentation process? It's a fermentation process, and thankfully, I don't have to pay too much attention for oh, it good. to succeed. <laughs> right. It's not going to kill know. you. I think it usually takes like a month to brew, maybe. No, that's not bad. Yeah. And then you put it in bottles and let it sit out for a week, and then it gets all fizzy. It does. It has a little carbonation. Yeah. yeah. This has been right this now. one's been in the fridge for like two months, so I think hmm. it loses its carbonation a little bit when it it's, it's like first. But it's nice. It's an, it's got a good yeah. balance. So, Eve, how long have you been in Wasaic? And I caught you just as you're drinking kombucha. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, that's all right. <laughs> well, a decade. We're going into our well now almost eleven years. We're going into our tenth year anniversary, our tenth anniversary season. But actually, it's the, our eleventh year of programming because we were founded in two thousand eight, and now it's twenty eighteen. But nobody. If we said that 2007 was our 10-year anniversary, that wouldn't make any sense to anybody yeah. because 2008 to 2017 feels like nine years. Actually, said anyway, whatever. Ten years. <laughs> Ten years. Um, <laughs> we'll stick with that. <laughs> yeah. But Bowie and Jeff have been here full-time since 2009, I think, or maybe 2010. No, I think that's right. The fall of 2009. Yeah. So I go back and forth from New York City from Brooklyn to here and during the school year I'm down in Brooklyn summer we're full-time here and in the school year I'm back and forth a lot and I'm doing 
like what I did last night, which was going to the prototype theater festival. And I guess it's actually opera and going to a cocktail party for the Williams College Museum of Art and meeting people <laughs> and going to openings and doing studio visits and a lot of like schlepping around and, uh, and you know, networking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this, the, the Wissaic project is what brought you up here. Then. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't, and Jeff, were you here at this? I mean, was it all the same thing, same time? Or no. did you actually live up here? No, 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 no. Eve and Bowie and Alain Bogarin decided that they want to... Well, you should tell your own story. Oh, well, so, okay. So Bowie and I were making art together as a collaborative practice. We've been making art for maybe eight months. Bowie Zanino. Bowie Zanino, yeah. And she was in school at RISD, kind of miserably, you know, in graduate school in the sculpture program there. And I was down in Brooklyn. We were kind of making stuff and I was spending a lot of time in Providence. And these two hippies that she knew in Providence were like, we want to start a musical festival, man. We were like, oh, cool. Like, that sounds pretty fun. You know, maybe we could do an art show that goes along with it. And we, Ben Bowie said, you know, my dad just has this property that is, you know, is being finished, being renovated, sort of. And he bought, he had bought it, this was 2008, so he'd bought it in 2005. And maybe we can do something in the field there. So me and Bowie and these two hippies, and I invited Alon and her part, then partner up to come and join. And Alon I'd met in Chicago uh, at a show that we'd both been in. And I was like, she's a go-getter. She's a real doer. Let's bring her in, you know, and we'll see if we can get something done. So we all come up. We brainstorm a bunch of ideas. And then the two hippies disappear. And Alon and Bowie and I were like, Fuck it, let's do something. And the hippies never existed. <laughs> um, James Sienna did a t-shirt last summer that was like, the hippies were right. Nothing exists. You don't exist. I don't exist. <laughs> so we just kind of went for it. And we had maybe 15 bands. And I was like on my honeymoon for part of the summer. And Alon and Boy were hustling some stuff together. And, you know, it was sort of friends of friends. And boom, all of a sudden, 500 people are in the Hamlet. And wow. it was a really kind of magical moment. And we got this amazing feedback and I was like, do more. And so we did this show in the fall that was like way too much work and was insane. But we had the winter to regroup. And um, but before you um, move on, were you prepared for that? What was that like? No, we weren't prepared for any of it. We didn't really have a plan. You know, there was no sort of like, oh, you know, interdisciplinary arts hub dedicated to community development. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> I mean, we had good instincts. And in even that first year, um, there was this house across the street from the barn and there were a couple families living in it and there were a bunch of kids who were so sweet and Bowie and I were up in Amenia grocery shopping for like snacks for the artists or something, you know, topping out the like six grand that we put on our credit cards to like do this event, <laughs> which most of which we made back actually in that first year. But, and we were, I don't, we were like in the aisle and we're like, oh, let's get some, you know, instant lemonade and a pitcher and we'll give it to the kids across the street and they'll have a lemonade stand. And it was, there. that was not, that was born just of instincts. It wasn't born of like a, how do we strategically cultivate the children of this community, you know? <laughs> but they loved it. They made like 70 bucks. They were out of their mind. I mean, can you imagine making 70 bucks in a lemonade stand in one afternoon? They were like so psyched. And um, those kids sort of became the core of, of our drop-in education program programs for the next couple of years wow. you know and and there was you know obviously we had a relationship beyond some of those first interactions but I, I think that sort of maybe in our hearts our hearts had a better plan than our minds <laughs> um, and so then Bowie and Jeff met in Providence and somehow she hogtied you and dragged you to a sick no <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, basically, we met, and I was like, oh, it's great to meet you. I just want to let you know I'm moving to Los Angeles. Oh. And she was like, oh, that's great. Well, I lived there before. I'd like to move back after school. And I was like, great. Okay, well, we'll see if that works out. And she said, but, you know, before you go, before we go, we have to stop in Wasaic and, like, throw this festival. And I was like, look, I really can't afford to hang out all summer without a job and throw this festival. And she was like, all right. And then miraculously, this advertising job showed up. And I was a part-time commercial photographer. I was a professor at RISD that year. And I'd never worked in advertising. And I was like, okay, here we go. Let's pay off our student loans. So I was hanging out until the fall for that thing to come through. And we're like living at Bowie's parents' house, which was not ideal. (laughs) And um, we threw the festival and it was fabulous. And we had a great time. And I think it was better than ever when we have like a thousand people or something. Um, And, you know, all these people came that we knew and loved and it just, it felt really great. And uh, right after that, the ad job fell through and I was just like, (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) So we, we started sort of like picking up odd jobs and trying to figure out how to plot our next move. I was working as a part-time professional baccarat player. (laughs) Wait here. No, in the city. I was oh. actually I was doing QA for new betting points at this uh, at a, a firm called Control Group, which uh, our friend Scott was one of the founders. Um, so I was just making some part time money. And basically, we we had a series of conversations with different people who were important to us, who basically said like, this has this moment where it can become something, but it can't do that unless you all really commit to it. And you know, Bowie's dad was sort of like, you can give it to someone else, but you can't keep it. And other people we talked to were like, this is of your time. You should move there. And, you know, it was obvious, I think, to everyone else except maybe us. Uh, <laughs> and then we, there was this rental house available and we thought, okay, let's let's give it a try. I mean, it is a project, right? So we thought this is not establishing our lives forever. We can come up and try it. And then almost immediately we said, well, we got to get more people up here to hang out with us. We should start a residency. And that's basically, I think, does that sound about right, Eve? Yeah, And, and that's about 10 years ago you're talking. Yeah, that would have yeah. been the, the winter of 2009. We worked mm. on the barn to get it ready. And we started our first season summer of 2010. So we opened our doors basically May 1st uh, for the residency program um, and ran it for the summer. And it was great. And we shut it down for the winter. And we all kind of went our separate ways and did our own thing. And the next year started up again and it felt like we started it from scratch. And so we thought, okay, maybe we shouldn't shut that off anymore. Mm. And and that's kind of been a lot of what we've learned. You know, initially it was, and it still is the, the spirit of it is this has to work within our lives, within our families and things like that. And that's been really important. But one of the things that we've learned is that that doesn't necessarily mean that this thing stops. Uh, it just means, you know, how do we keep it going in a really sustainable way? And, um, that's been a lot of learning for us. I mean, the art thing is one thing, but the management of people, the creation of a nonprofit, the management of the board, um, the management of our image in town. I mean, these have all been jobs that uh, we used to sort of say no one would have hired us for, yeah. uh, but here we are. And it's it's been pretty fascinating, I think. Yeah. And just uh, staying with the very beginnings a little bit, I can imagine you trying to do this in another place where you would be shut down immediately and it would be very complicated with permits and licenses and all kinds of other things. It sounds like you were able to come here and really sort of start, just sort of run into it and, and, and get it going. And, and maybe maybe 
naively as well, but but it seems like you didn't come up with a lot of resistance. Well, plenty of naivete, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but also a kind of remarkable confluence of willingness and openness, both in the community here in Wasayak, which is a really you know, fascinating and close-knit community. And we're very sensitive to you know people saying like, oh, you're up there community building or creating an artist community. Oh, yeah. And we're like, well, well, no, actually, there's a great community here in Wasayak already. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. You know, and you didn't come to save with saying no. no, and and they are sort of our hosts and our friends here and our neighbors. It's this isn't like, you know, art saves the day. You know, art is contributing to a, what is really a vibrant community, and it's evolving, and we're evolving together. It's not a sort of you know, enforcement or top down or like you said, sort of saving. But I think that because of the businesses that existed here in Wasik over the past. 50, 75, 100 years, there was not insane resistance to a gathering of people. So we are hosting the festival now at the Maxon Mills and the bar and the Luther Barn, but at the beginning was really focused on the Luther Barn. And when the Luther Barn was operating as a livestock auction barn, um, which I think started in about 1945, 46, uh, up until definitely super active through the mid late 80s and active until really through the 90s occasionally or maybe it was more active through mid 90s there were auctions here twice a week Mm. and you wouldn't be able to drive down the main street there were so many trucks and cars until 2 a.m wow (laughs) you know there was a luncheonette there was the bar there was a post office there was a candy shop there was a grocery you know it's it's been in a kind of economic the commercial strip has been in an economic decline for probably 25 or 30 years. And the idea of people gathering here and kind of making a ruckus every once in a while, you know, four times a year is way less than twice a week. <laughs> so um, there was this sort of openness that we didn't really, you know, we didn't know that when we arrived. And, you know, that was sort of this part of this serendipity of confluence, you know, as well as, kind of catching this moment in emerging artists where there are so many MFA programs right now and there's such a saturation of artists and MFAs in New York City. It's really competitive. You you think? (laughs) It's, you know, I think that people are, you know, emerging artists, I was going to say young artists, but really just emerging artists are really hungry. Emerging, mid-career, it's all over. Yeah, yeah. People are hungry for a place where they can get together and just be sort of comrades in arms, you know, not sort of fighting each other or competing for an opportunity. You know, Boyce told me a story about graduate school where someone didn't tell someone else that they'd even applied for a residency because if the other person applied, then it would be more competitive. It's like, geez, guys, like, how about a, you know, let's edit each other's artist statements kind of mentality. <laughs> you know, like, you win, I win, everybody wins. Okay. So they, they're, I think that moment is still, we're still in that moment, but mm-hmm. um, this really created an outlet because artists were willing to come up and do crazy things basically for free because it was really fun and they were having a great time, not just because they were meeting us, but because they were meeting each other and because they were interacting with an audience that wasn't, you know, that might buy a piece if they wanted to, but wasn't there to sort of judge you know, is this worth it? Is it not worth it? You know, should this go to a museum? You know, it's just sort of like, we're going to enjoy this together. It's going to be really high quality because we have really high standards. And it's it's going to be sort of joy- more joyful rather than kind of 
business and competition focused. Right. Yeah, you know, I had um, on a much smaller scale, uh, uh, some similar experiences when I started running the, the gallery in Trenton for my colleges, expectations were very different uh, from different sort of communities, different uh, investors <laughs> in it, right? Different, um, you know, uh, some people thought I w- it would just be this sort of community gallery and I would just show people from Trenton and, you know, give them a place to show. And I want to do that and I do do that and everything. And, and some people, you know, never expected that anyone would want to show in Trenton, you know, at my little gallery in Trenton. And I've never had anyone say no. Right. I mean, there's first of all, it's a little biased to think that no one would show. But um, but also, you know, I was a little concerned, you know, in making that trip to Trenton from New York. People don't like to cross the river <laughs> into New Jersey. And, uh, but it's been uh, just a great experience. And and I think I think there is a there is a reputation of competitiveness with artists and uh, a fear that they will be diminished if they're not showing in Chelsea and uh, you know or in Brooklyn, and I, and I think that's that's a complete misrepresentation. I think the everyone I've spoken to, they, there's incredible generosity with each other, and they they want to help each other and bring each other up. And uh, someone opens the gallery, and, and everybody's willing to to throw in to pitch in and, and try to build that gallery with them. Right. It's almost like you have to take people out of the context yeah. for their true feelings to come out. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So I, I interrupted your story a little bit. Um, you had that that first year, that first experience, and and you were starting to build on that. Yeah. So Bowie and Jeff, in that sort of two thousand nine ten, really spearheaded the creation of the residency program, and that was really amazing to see come to life and but I think that that was fundamentally coming from the same place that you're sort of talking about which is like how do we create a space that allows for a non-competitive sort of networking and friendship building that basically we thought about all the good things about grad school and we wanted to replicate those and we wanted to try and remove some of the things that we're not so excited about and there was a lot of self-selection that happened through the, the the interview process or even the application process. You know, it was pretty clear that um, the space was not ideal for most things and it was not particularly programmed. And it was something that people really needed to show up and author themselves. And I think that that continues to this day. And that's the real strength of yeah. the residency experience here. Yeah, you, you gave me that tour. And, and I that was the feeling I got. It's like, you don't, you're not coming here and dropping off your work. <laughs> you're you're building your space. You're customizing your space. I, I think just the four people I ran into, there was someone painting, there's someone installing, someone sheetrocking, someone right. <laughs> Everybody's doing a you know doing something to really take ownership of that space. Yeah, I think that's significant, and even more than that, it, it's about how they continue their professional practice development, and you know. What the most common story I hear is, oh, I met this person and then they put me in a show and then we did this show together. We did this performance together. We're still great friends and we keep in touch about each other's work. And and I think that an ongoing evolution of your community is an important part of your artistic practice. And I think residency programs can be instrumental in that. I think ours is specifically geared towards that. Mm. Yeah, I was speaking with someone last night who asked you know, do you feed your residents? And I said, you know, no, you know, institutionally, we're working towards a model where we can give more full fellowships and, you know, maybe stipends one day and really create an environment where there's no economic barrier. But I think that even if we do end up giving stipends one day, I don't think we want 
provide food because one of the things that we see is that the relationships, many of the relationships that we hear about that come out of the program are not from the two painters that month. They're not from the studios who are next door to each other. It's who's in the lodge who wakes up at eight and drinks coffee. Who's Mm. in the schoolhouse who sleeps till noon and is a vegetarian. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of like, it's like lifestyle affinity, which crosses genre, race, economic, Mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, it's just sort of like your morning routine is almost like the most important thing about. I think the other thing is that everyone is temporary. So rather than a temporary person trying to bond with someone who's permanently here going about their life, everyone's a little bit thrown off and trying to sort of find their bearings. You know, we talk a lot about the, the, taking turns making dinner. And so traditionally what people do is they'll say, okay, I've got Monday, I'll cook and I'll clean. You guys just come back from the studio or wherever you are and eat and we swap through. And those that type of fellowship and exchange is as old as people. Right. Um, right. And it, it's just nice to have a space where that can be facilitated. And I think that that's really all that we are as facilitators. Yeah. And also, I don't think you're trying to make it completely insular. I think you... Also, you, what you want to remind people that they're living in a community, right? A, a hamlet, you call it. Wasake is a hamlet, I think you said. Yeah, it. yeah, it's one of the six hamlets of Amenia. Right. So if if you're if you're just if you build the space and you're supplying everything, there's much less involvement with the community, right? You're not just trying to make a commune. Right. Well, well the other thing is that we're not, we are lo- literally located in town. And right. so right. people are having to walk from the house to the studios and they're walking past the post office and past the bar and past the general store. And there's a lot more uh, inclination towards sort of saying hello than there used to be it in the, in the mm-hmm. past. And that's, I think, a, a fantastic measure of the impact and the evolution of this community, um, especially when it comes to dealing with outsiders. The space, while it did host the uh, all the auctions in the past, I wouldn't say that when we got here that it was most open to folks from different walks of life. And I think that I can comfortably say at this point that it, that has completely changed. Mm. And, uh, and most of that comes from simple interactions, like at the bar or in line at the post office. I mean, everyone knows that you're not from here. They can tell because they know everybody who is from here. <laughs> well, what did you? And, how many people did you say were here? So there's about 1,400 in the zip code and about mm. 200 in the hamlet. But you know, even though those numbers paint the super rural space, we've got about 30,000 people within a 15-mile radius. Right. So it's more right. that... Wasaic sort of has this geographic isolation in this valley. And only back in 2001 did the train come back. Um, But the highway bypassed it a long time ago. And so it's been this sort of space that's been stuck in time for better or for worse. It's actually quite beautiful. I mean, driving up here, I was like, oh my God, this is... (laughs) It's hard to believe that it's this close Mm. to New York City. Yeah, yeah. So when did you... You you were saying that... um, you needed to keep it going more year round because you didn't want to have to keep restarting. Um, and so when did you start growing in terms of like, you know, size and staff and people and things like that? Well, by 2010, all of our sort of core programs were in place. We haven't even touched on education yet. All right, right. So we had the residency going, the exhibition was going, um, public programming was was happening in the summers. And then education really started probably in 2009. But we sort of continued in in 2010 and we started taking interns I think in 2009 and and even when Bowie and Jeff were building out the residency they were artist friends like Dana Bunker who became the residency director um, the first residency director after we were running it you know came up for 
a few weeks even I, you know, I don't know weeks days to come up and help and mm. you know she was one of our first residents it was very like up on a ladder scraping paint <laughs> you know for hours at a time really willing really excited to be sort of making something new and th- you know this isn't that unusual I mean you know I think when even as late as when Dia Beacon was being put together it was like artists getting together and kind of getting the shit together and collaborating and kind of having it grow from from there, you know, and at this point, you know, it's not unusual for us to have a season of residence where I don't know anyone and I'm probably not even one or two degrees connected to mm. anyone. But that wasn't true at the beginning. And, you know, it was a um, for that sort of first or first season and a half. It was incredibly helpful to have people here who, you know, when we totally fucked up or if something like was horrible or we hadn't planned for something we're willing to kind of jump in and fix it together and we still have that mentality with the residents but we're sort of much more organized and together that that is much more unusual our jobs have also evolved and there's a a sort of different set of responsibilities at this stage i i would say that that beginning time we we seeded the residency as well we we reached out to the people that we knew and cared about who thought would be really fabulous put an open call out too, but we also invited a lot of people and then they told their friends and they had a great experience. Right, and, and there were people that we didn't know, there. like Josh Atlas who yeah, came that first season. Yeah. I mean, you know, from LA and people. John Pena. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, John Pena. So good. Yeah. It was really, I guess it really was a mix from the beginning. I discount that. So. Well, Hope Gangloff, I invited her. She was like, a, she was my studio mate in Brooklyn or in Greenpoint, I guess. Adam before and Lauren, that. And, Paul and Jen. Yeah, um, it, it was it was sort of an interesting first season. But you know, we were also really involved. We were all go- we were going swimming every day with everybody. We <laughs> we really hosted them in a different way, and um, that was both exciting and exhausting. And mm. I think we <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, yeah. we realized that that wasn't particularly sustainable. A model that us. we would no right, no no not at all. Um, <laughs> But it was it was a great it was a great experience. It was just it was not the thing that we needed uh, to continue. <laughs> I think from there, what really started happening was the the festival, which kind of became or always was sort of the signature component. The music right? festival. The music, well, music, art, dance, and film. Oh, okay. That that really was, I think, the thing that helped our name get out there, and people just kept telling other people there's this really cool thing that has a great vibe. It's totally free. It's different from any other festival you ever go to. And you also have to keep in mind that festivals are really hot right now. But when this started 10 years ago, 11 years ago, they were not as big. I mean, yeah, you had your Lollapalooza and your Bonnaroo and things like that, but now like every place has a festival, right? You know, it's sort of a different scenario and it's kind of made us rethink a little bit how we want to engage with it because there's different expectations now surrounding festivals. There were when we were engaging with it before, but that really grew our donor base. It grew uh, the artists who wanted to be involved because they came, they said, Oh, I saw this thing. It was great. The exhibition was fabulous. How do I get involved? And I think that that fundamentally was the thing that helped us outside of our community grow within our community though. I think that we've had a couple other things that have been pretty significant. So we started trying to do these sort of community uh, day thank you parties. uh, And they started uh, on the Thursday before the festival, which let me tell you is totally crazy. I don't know what we were thinking. You know, and we'd like have free beer and like throw a party for sort of like a mini block party. And one of the things that was really transformative was we... We'd been working with the fire company, the Wasaic Fire Company in town, and a fabulous group of uh, men and women that 
have this culture of uh, volunteerism. It's non-religious. It really was a built-in natural partner for us. I don't think we necessarily understood that from the beginning, but we started doing more and more with them and they were helping us produce the events. Um, our community days weren't particularly successful. And then essentially tragedy struck within our town. Uh, one of the company members who was, I think 36 at the time was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, and so the fire company came to us and said, do you guys mind if we joined forces and threw a fundraiser for him? Mm. And that for us, I think was not only significant, to us personally, but also significant to the community because it meant that we were really going to be partners on a significant event. So that had a a huge impact on his end of life and what he was able to do for his kids moving forward. And it, it changed the way I think we thought about how we wanted to move forward in this community. So that, and then into education and our increasing engagement in the local school district level, those are the things that sort of transformed us locally into I think, uh, I think what we are now, and I think those components are probably some of which we're most proud. Yeah, I mean, I you can imagine things going the other way. You know, these these group of outside artists moving in. I think just because of the people you are and and the sensitivities you have, you you recognize that there was opportunities with with the community, and that it wasn't going to work without the community. And getting that invitation from the fire department, which is very moving. Uh, also is is such a uh, just a, an, an indication that you were accepted too. We had some early great partners. Scott Boardman, who was the chief then, just uh, I, I, he was so kind and willing to sort of do whatever we needed him to do and sort of help motivate others to to support us in whatever task. And I think what they kind of said to us, and it's this simple as looks like you guys are trying to do a good thing here. Nice. Uh, that's what we want for our town too. So. How can we help? How do mm-hmm. you know? And I think fundamentally, that's what all this comes down to is if you establish over a period of time that you're a genuine person who's not trying to be exploitive, I mean, yeah, there's going to be hiccups along the way, but I think in the end, it's going to come out pretty good because mm-hmm. people will have seen over a period of time, you, you're not here to hurt them. You're right. here I, to do something positive. I think too, I don't know that we, that I could at least have articulated this in, in this way at the beginning, but we talk to other community organizations all the time. They're like, oh, how do you get such great community engagement? You know, we do events all the time and the community doesn't come. And it's like, well, are you doing events for your community or are you doing events with your community? Right. And they're like, oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, or other, you know, or organizations who have been around a long time who are curious about getting their community to come. And I said, well, do you know your neighbors? Well, I guess I know who lives at that house. And I said, well, you know, have you knocked on their door with a pitcher of lemonade mm-hmm. or, you know, some cookies or just a smile and introduced yourself, which is, you know, a, a really a manifestation of mutual respect. And rather than sort of coming in in a kind of condescending way to actually approach programming as equals, I think is remarkably unusual. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and have you have you gotten a sense? I imagine you have um you know, sort of the politics of the town? Does it lean conservative? Is it sort of split down the middle? Is it lean liberal? You know, I mean... I mean, we we have some numbers. I mm-hmm. think what's most complicated about this space is that traditionally speaking, it's divided by class more than anything. Mm. So there's a, 
a significant weekender community. And then there's also a community of people that are locals that have been here multiple generations. And economically, it's a depressed time for them in this community for lots of reasons that are not their fault um, that have to do with infrastructure and other types of investment that will allow for sort of growth in this community. I think within those populations, you will find both conservative and Mm. liberal scenarios. I also think that up here, it's sort of a unique mix of maybe financial conservatism, but sort of more like socially moderate that's engagement. What I, yeah, that's what I was going to get to. I, you know, I, I, and I didn't mean to use that as any kind of a pejorative label of any of any kind, because I, I think what you find is once you're involved with people on a one-to-one basis and actually talking to them, politics doesn't necessarily determine what they're going to be like as neighbors. It just doesn't. I mean, abortion yeah. as, yeah. A, as a voting issue right. just simply never, ever, ever comes up in mm-hmm. any of the conversations that I have. And in fact, I, I have sort of advocated within the town that we get rid of political party affiliation for town board mm-hmm. just because I don't think that it's that productive actually or the majority of... I mean, nobody around here wants to pay more in taxes. Right. That, that, like nobody does. <laughs> right. But... I find that there are more fights around sort of partisan labels than there are about actual issues. Yeah. And, you know, I, we, we sort of have a complicated take on some of that here, but we've all taken different strategies to sort of engage with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's remarkably mixed. And I think that what's interesting is that, you know, some of our artists who come up from Brooklyn are like, whoa, so conservative. You know, it's like <laughs> they see the Trump bumper stickers and somehow right. are blind to the Bernie stickers. <laughs> Nobody has any Hillary stuff, but you know, it's, what are you going to do? That seems to be a national issue. Um, Those are the two it's, extremes. Right? It's really split, though. I mean, we're in the 19th district and it's it's basically 50 50. Mm-hmm down party affiliation with a strong independent registration too. What's also interesting is that I think, you know, in talking to Brian, he's like, well, with sakes, you know, Republican, it's always kind he's of been my Republican. Next door and, is, <laughs> and is amazing, is a really wonderful human along with the rest of his family. So his conception of the town that, you know, that is his town is more conservative than I think it actually is. Mm-hmm. If you look at sort of voter roles, um, which is just interesting. I, I don't know why that is. And I, I think the the biggest issue that we face sort of in that realm up here is that there's there's really no more trusted and consistent news source in our town. All the, all the small town papers for the most part close unless they're being supported by someone as sort of a pet project. Right. And the one that really served Amenia went away. And then there was another sort of attempt to bring something back and that's gone. And so consequently, you know, most people would rather rely on rumors to hear what's going on in town than watch the entire town board meeting on YouTube, yes. which is, <laughs> let me tell you, it can be exciting because of the fights, but right. it's not something that's particularly interesting beyond that. So I think that that sort of struggle to communicate well is a huge, huge issue here. And one of the funny things that, you know, we accidentally did, I think really well was we, we took over the bar in town and we really, really needed the guy who had been running it before to continue running it to sort of show us the ropes. And we wanted to make sure all the locals still felt welcome. And okay, this guy's awesome. His name's Gary Brabender. But what we did with Gary was, I mean, we were friends with him. We became very close with him. And we were just honest with him constantly about what we were doing. He was always the first to know I was pregnant oh, wow. <laughs> because he'd ask what I wanted to drink and I'd say oh, seltzer and he'd right. say, okay, okay. Eve, yes. <laughs> so, I'll get you that drink. So Gary was essentially sort of deputized to go forth and gossip. And 
people would come and say, I heard this. And he'd go, no, I talked to Eve. I talked to Jeff. That's not what's going on. You couldn't have picked a better spokesperson than a town bartender, right? Who probably talks to almost everybody. That's absolutely true. And we also couldn't have picked a kinder guy. Uh I mean, we got really, really lucky. I mean, he could have been Mm -hmm. anything. And he's just the most genuine guy. And he's he's an old hippie. Uh-huh. Long hair, long gray hair, wolf His shirts. Most spectacular wolf shirts. <laughs> Fabulous guy. So, I mean, things like that, like giving other people the power to speak on your behalf, that's sort of doing something with people. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when they come to you with an idea, putting your energy behind their idea. I mean, those are the things that, in hindsight, I think have been incredibly successful strategies for us, but not. They're accidental. They were natural. Totally. Yeah, totally like organic evolution. Right. Yeah, there was no market plan. All right, we're going to get to know the bartender. And then... (laughs) No, in fact, this whole time we've been like, what are we doing? Do we have to go get jobs? What's happening? This is crazy. Maybe we still have that conversation. (laughs) No, it really happened organically. I mean, Gary and I got to know each other better probably in the summer of... Maybe it was as early as 2009. It was that summer that Josh, my husband, was up in Vancouver for like six weeks or something ridiculous working on one of the Twilight movies. So I was up here alone, like, you know, just miserable. And I had a three o'clock beer like every weekday. Oh, wow. And I'd be in there with Conrad and and Dave and Gary. And not they, pregnant like, at the time. No, not pregnant <laughs> at the time. It was just pre-babies. And, you know, it was like I got a Corona, which they all teased me about because it wasn't a Budweiser, of course, light. Um, and, you know, it's like I never bought my own beer. It was amazing. But it was, I'd be in there from like 3 to 3.30 in the afternoons, just kind of like taking the edge off and that bar would be closed by six yeah but the great thing about the bar is everybody goes for the same reason mm-hmm. you know i mean not necessarily to like get housed but just to right. relax and kind of be out of you know regular life for a little bit mm-hmm. what i mean jeff can speak to the lantern laws a little bit maybe no maybe not yeah i mean <laughs> we I mean, it's sort of a far more complicated story, but, you know, we, we've basically had all these unwritten rules in the bar, which other other bars share. You but said you run the Lantern now, right? Yeah, I'm on my way out. It was it was a way for me to make an income and continue to be here and not mm-hmm. have to leave. And I was also the only one who'd ever worked in bar and restaurants. So I'd done that, you know, basically from high school on through graduate school. So we, we took this bar and we're, we did a big renovation and... We were trying to put a restaurant in, but couldn't because of infrastructure. And we're just kind of like keeping this thing going. And we had a great pool league, which was local and people would kind of come in, but it was just kind of limping along. We would just like go down there and hang out. And then this one day, this and this is kind of what changed things now towards where it is now. We got a, a change in our um, insurance. So we were reclassified as a dive bar. Oh. And our um, annual insurance premium was 50% of our annual sales. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, and Wait, so, d- dive bar is a classification, <laughs> or <laughs> I, I mean, they, that's what they said to me on the phone. Oh, but I, okay. you know, right. it's like you know, no food served. You know, oh, sort of okay. highest highest uh, chance of sort of conflict. Oh, and so I went to the board of health, who'd we've been really struggling with to sort of put in some new evolved like water treatment system, and we figured out a strategy that involved putting a giant tank behind the bar that they would have to pump that came from the the kitchen and and lo and behold we be they said okay and we opened as a restaurant so all of a sudden something really different happened at the lantern the lantern became this mixing spot for all of the classes in this community and there really is no other space where people are socially 
engaged in that way around here mm. except a, for the wasay project and the kids programming right i, I mean commercial space <laughs> right not, you know for-profit commercial space <laughs> totally agreed i mean people you know all go to the same grocery store and stuff but it's not like they're talking in no, the aisles or anything no. like that. that is not a socializing spot right? so we we started serving pizza the pizza recipe was developed by this guy angelo womack who was the partner and is the partner of dana bunker our early residency director and then he had to he was going to run the restaurant but they moved to California. California called. Restaurant. California called. He bring his, um, bring his own yeast starter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, like, he made this fabulous pizza recipe, and we blew up as this pizza joint. And we had to fence in the outside, so all of a sudden, people started bringing kids. Oh, okay. And so people were connecting over their kids, and it was this amazing thing. And as we saw over the past three, I guess it's four years now, this it's turned into this huge business, which is fabulous. But the thing that started to happen around the election with Trump was that we started to see sort of more acting out within that space, sort of more like trying on some racist language or whatever. And sorry to have this be this long way into this. No, no, that's okay. We felt kind of compelled to restate that we wanted to keep a space that felt accessible by all. And we had to figure out what the lowest common denominator was. And basically we were like, okay, look, you can't talk about politics. You can't talk about religion and you can't use hate speech. Mm-hmm. When in doubt, please, please be polite. And the funny thing is some of the weekenders hate that. <laughs> They're like, I don't like being told what to do. And the way I feel about it is if I can't hear it, it's not an issue. You guys can talk about whatever you want as long yeah, as it's yeah. quiet. Right. You just can't be you can't yelling. shout it at the person next to you. Right? That's the how table I feel next about to you. it. Right, right. So, embarrassingly, I misspelled religion on the sign. So it says, it says religion. That's amazing. No one's called me on it. That though. sounds like a loophole. Yeah, I didn't say it, religion. It might be. It might I be. said religion. No more religion. <laughs> but, you know, these sort of experiments, it's, it's interesting because our town is so small and we know everyone here. You kind of hear about it from everyone. If like yeah. the pizza starts to get a little bit worse, boy, everyone's like, I need to talk to you about something. <laughs> Did you change your tomato supplier? Can I give you some feedback about the lantern to which I always say no. (laughs) So um, you mentioned um, the school program. We were starting to talk about the school program and and you were saying that that is a a good community space where a lot of people come together and all. So when when did that start? And are, are we talking about like after school programs, that kind of idea or? We kind of do a little bit of everything. So we started we started drop-in education programming, I think, in 2009, maybe just part of the festival. And then by 2010, when we had the residents, we would do it on open studio days. And I think Hallie joined us in, as an intern as an intern in maybe 2010. So this was our sort of founding education director, Hallie Scott, who is now out at the Getty Museum, who's really amazing and was really transformative in our program. And she established the partnership with our local consolidated middle elementary and high schools. And I think that that was eight years ago now. And she also created programs on site that were that required sign up that are free for are free or heavily subsidized for our local public school district and then sort of a, a menial fee for essentially weekenders or kids up here who are in private school, but, you know, sort of in a sliding scale, everyone's welcome kind of situation. And so now 
Tara Foley as our education director. She's been with us for two and a half years, who has also been incredible and has blown up our partnerships. Now we work in six public schools in New York and Connecticut. But our focus really is on Weebatuck. Wasaic by Weebatuck is our sort of flagship education program. And uh, (laughs) three artists a year come to the residency program in a fully funded spot for one to two months. They develop a curriculum around their own practice with Tara and they bring it into the schools. And it's great for the residents because they have developed this curriculum around their own work, which most of them have never done before. They get great teaching experience, and it's great for us because we're bringing this incredible international resource to our local public school that's really meant to augment the existing arts and cultural programming that are already in that's already in the schools, which is sort of always in danger of being on the chopping block, but is very robust. Yeah, and, and um, I think I... I just want to jump in and say that, you know, our goal here is not to create a new class of artists. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really focused on agency building, creative problem solving, group work together, and then cultural access and exposure, hopefully leading to a greater social tolerance. Right. Um, That's that's fundamentally kind of where we are. We're like, how do we create a rich tapestry? Absolutely. You know, non-cognitive skill building that really will help these students succeed and be successful in transitions in their life, you know, as well as professionally and emotionally. And our on-site programming is one of the other places where we really see class mixing because of the relationships that Bowie Jeff and I have established through our funders and our community partners and the bar and our friends and you know, a myriad of other ways, as well as the community partners that we've established and our staff have established. There's this soup um, and the kids are really getting together and you don't see it at the other summer programs and you don't see it in the local public school. And, you know, these kids are having these amazing experiences that, you know, are building empathy and one kid's talking about going to the toy store with his mom. Another kid's like, well, we don't go to the toy store. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and like, that's just not like on, on both sides. It's like, what, what is possible? And these kids are both like happy and making the same project yes. and interested and friendly with each other. And you know, some, of, some really of these, important. some of these goals come from um, reading Robert Putnam. He, uh, he's the social scientist from Harvard. And one of the things he said that it was really positive about, some of the schools that were mixed class in the sixties and seventies, but the single best indicator of class upward mobility was the mixing of classes. So, you know, you go over to this kid's house and they're going to a museum for the weekend, or you go over to this kid's house and they're doing whatever that type of diversity of experience for kids is just incredibly positive. Yeah. It's, it's important early on. My, um, my wife, Cynthia raises money for a private middle school in, in Manhattan. And so it's to give these opportunities to, to kids who are, are, are academically gifted in some ways in the public schools, but they're just not being challenged enough and things. And so they they get this free ride to this uh, private school, which is then another opportunity to get into, you know, better high schools and, and uh, things like that. But one of the issues they do have is when they do move on to the next level, they're often in these classes of very wealthy children. And there's a big culture shock and there's a real adjustment there. So, you know, being able to just just get to know people uh, among, you know, uh, of different class of uh, different social status and all early on where it doesn't become strange or unusual when you do, you know, uh, sort of run into that when you're older. Right. It's a big deal. I think know? also, you know, creating mutual respect. I mean, it's not sort of all about, you know, upward mobility is 
important but mm-hmm. you know just as we're not trying to create another class of artists we're not also not trying to like create kids who are like climbing some social ladder you know up to more wealth unless that's what they want right um and they can decide that for themselves it's it's going in both directions it's not just like oh these poor kids are meeting these rich kids like great it's also you know that uh, it's also the other way. cultural empathy yeah you know a, yeah. across across the spectrum mm-hmm. that i think is really critical and you know in both cases i think that you know, these kids are not necessarily mixing outside their class mm-hmm. um, in in a way where they are treated equally. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's tough to find the spaces and opportunities just to do that. So I remember, Eve, we met at the School of Visual Arts. Lucas Thorpe well, hosted that pa- uh, panel. Mm-hmm. Bronx Documentary Center was there. NIFA was there, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, Brick and then another photography residency down on the Lower East Side, the name of which right. I was oh, yeah. my mind. Yep. And so one of the things that... Um, that uh, you you all spent a lot of time talking about was uh, raising money and grant writing and mm. things like that and uh, um, so you, I think you mentioned you have you have donors but so then how much of your money is state and federal and and all kinds of other sources? That's a great question. Um, we're a little unusual in that our foundation and state funding is under twenty percent of our budget. Mm. Earned income is about fifteen percent, and the remainder is individual donors and one of the reasons yeah it's it is it's it's Mm -hmm. interesting it's a different kind of work it's more social which Mm -hmm. i think we're all more adapted to (laughs) um than like really careful grant writing you know behind a closed door (laughs) um one of the reasons that we developed that model was because we were founded in 2008 and the economy was in the crapper that was the that was the height of the of the financial it crisis. Was the yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, but it also yes. ultimately is probably why we got our building. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah, and why at the beginning we were able to hire such amazing people for like almost no money. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Including ourselves. If that's right. right. Yeah, right. Everyone was Thanks, in the economy. Same I guess I was available <laughs> right. because of that. Um, <laughs> so we, Niska was, you know, or rather NIFA was... Um, or maybe it was Niska. I think it was Niska. Was sort of rescinding some of their grants, or having to cut back. So, oh, we gave you a sixty thousand dollar grant. We can only give you thirty five. Sorry, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in the middle of their grant after people had you know gotten their grant acceptances, and so we sort of looked at that and thought that's that was not our experience. Uh-huh. You know, we don't want that. There was no sixty thousand dollar grants for us. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, no, we but we weren't experiencing that then. But we were sort of like, well, we don't really want to dive into that because that's you know sounds really unreliable. And if we can have a hundred donors is giving 500 bucks and we lose three of them or 10 of them it's not as big a deal Mm -hmm. but we also were incredibly lucky to collaborate with three guest curators in 2009 sally morgan lehman liz parks and sally zanino and the three these three women who are total powerhouses Mm. all have balls of steel came and curated a really fabulous show in our space and threw a party and were so, so generous. I don't know what they were thinking. We're just so grateful with their contacts. And so that was very, very helpful in establishing the kind of beginning of a kind of pyramid of individual donors. Um, we should also plug Morgan Lehman Gallery. They, they have a great space in Chelsea, but they just opened up a new project space, I think in 526 was 26 mm-hmm. here on the fourth floor. So should check it out. Yeah, they mm. have an, a fabulous program. And Liz Parks is an arts consultant who has impeccable taste. She's <laughs> wonderful. And Sally Zanino was a great curator in, in that show and She's in our space. She's also my mother-in-law. Yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> She's great at that too. 
I wasn't sure where you were going with that. Yeah. She's been an incredible coach in this sort of nonprofit world. She has much, a lot of experience on boards. Yeah. So she was involved in the go project and still is, uh, which is taking kids in underperforming public schools and using private school facilities to sort of partner them with tutors. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say that she has been, steady through all this but a lot of our nonprofit fundraising education has come from her experience Absolutely. and i mean this has really become a big family for us but it's really sort of a big family business in a way you know we're all in the family together but i mean it's it's fabulous to have that type of institutional knowledge that we, we just really wouldn't have been prepared for without yeah absolutely so that's sort of where the the funding comes from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Jeff mentioned earlier, that sort of what we do and our job descriptions have evolved over time. We all spend way more time fundraising (laughs) than I thought was even possible. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's, I mean, most of it I really enjoy. Some of it's a slog, but I mean, the reality is, is like we get to go have dinner with people and talk about art. We get to talk about things that we're proud of that are happening. I mean, that's not a bummer. I mean, it's right. awesome. Having right. those conversations is awesome. We're proud of it. We now get asked to weigh in on different components uh, going on regionally. And I'm proud to sort of have that role and be asked for those things. It's exciting for us to participate in panels. Mm-hmm. You know, as this job has grown and changed i mean the nice thing is that we don't get bored i mean i I think we're constantly challenged but it's not the same thing and i don't think we would be happy still making all the bed frames or (laughs) stuffing all the envelopes although we still do that (laughs) so um you're both artists uh jeff you're primarily photography but you're you you see you see yourself much more as mixed artist right mixed media artist now or i you know i don't even know i mean i think at this point I sort of had this strange crisis of conscience about the sort of social practice term at some point. I mean, I've always been a socially engaged photographer. I did documentary initially and it sort of has evolved, but there was a moment where I was concerned that somebody from our town would hear that I was doing this as art Mm. instead of like as my art or whatever. And I didn't want there to be any misunderstanding about that. We were actually friends. I didn't want to put a layer in between us. And, and, and I know that social practice doesn't automatically do that, but I was more concerned about how it might be read by someone who doesn't have the benefit of the context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been kind of more cautious about that. And while I do think I'm an artist, I really just feel like this is sort of our life's work. And it's so, the umbrella art is pretty broad and big and that's great. That tent is nice but I kind of don't feel like I need the capital A anymore mm-hmm. to justify, but i I still take pictures. I yeah. still sell work. I still love doing that. I'm passionate about curating. I was um, looking at your, your website and the, I, what I noticed with your website and the Wasaic website is they've become integrated in a way like the there's Wasaic sort of the Wasaic project is you and you know, on both sites, like there's, there's a very, in, the, uh, I, I think the, things the separation is really yeah. challenging. And I, and I mean, I don't want to speak for Eve, but I think that there's sort of an evolution there too, that she'll speak to. But I, I think at least at this moment, it, you know, trying to sort of step out of this action and say, but wait, I'm actually this sort of thing over here. You know, even though that's what I was trying to do for a long time, all of a sudden it just felt like, whoa, this is totally silly. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud of what we've done. We've worked so hard. It's fabulous. It continues to grow. Why don't I just dive deeper. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like 
conversations early on with the Astor Gates and Rick Lowe and other artists who were just like, yeah, it's all art. Why, you know, why are you sort of siloing anything? And that's been really interesting and has taken me a while to really fully accept. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but that's that's mm-hmm. certainly the goal of just sort of saying, look, this is who I am. You know, if you don't want to talk about that part of me, that's okay. Yeah. You know, like, well, I'll engage it, you know, sort of in whatever level is interesting because, you know, there are these amazing sort of cross life happenings, you know, and ideas that just sort of shoot across connections and friendships and venues and focuses that just are fun and and exciting. (laughs) And there's just there's just not a lot of reason to silo anything. And there's so much benefit to sort of blowing that up and saying, look, this is who I am. I'm an artist. There there is sort of like a, a myriad constellation of things that that we do. And it's all it's all part of the art. Like we were shooting the shit over lunch. It's like right. Merlin Landis Euclid's like, it, it's all, it's all art. Exactly. You know, it's the labor is the art. Getting my kids ready to go in the morning is the art. It's all the work. Yeah. If you can't integrate it into your life, I don't see it being sustainable at all. Right. How are you going to, how are you going to, and, and, and this came up because I also said how I, I kind of disappeared for a while when I, when I got married and had kids and started working on the house and things like that. And it, and it occurred to me that I can't, I can't keep teaching. I can't, I can't put together shows at a gallery. I can't do this podcast if I'm not being, you know, being part of the culture I'm involved with, right? That was when I said I, I felt like a fraud earlier if I couldn't do it. If I, if I wasn't photographing and teaching and doing the gallery and this, uh, you know, and, and being with my kids and being a, a part of my family and, and all of that. If, if that wasn't all the same thing, how am I going to be one person over here and another person over there and, and, and be credible? Right? right. It's a total fallacy yeah. that you sort of have your artist hat on over yeah. here. And now <laughs> I have my administrator hat on over here. And right. now I've got my mom hat on. And, you know, now I've got my whatever. It's, you know, I don't change as a person. You know, one of the things that's been great about working within the Wasaic Project is that any time one of us sort of has a different interest, it seems like the tent has been big enough to sort of accommodate that. And, you know, I think even Bowie had this, you know, past of collaborating well together. And I, I, I myself never thought of myself as a collaborator. And once we all started working together, I kind of couldn't imagine a different way forward. It's so much more fruitful. It's so much more exciting. And, you know, in the past, a lot of what I enjoyed about making art was um, the, the response to the show or something like that. But, you know, once you get out of that cycle that you sort of have during school, that regular cycle, a lot of times you're just kind of making the art and then that, and then you don't get that sort of pop after. And what I started to do was transition my reward structure away from Mm -hmm. that experience towards the making. And, and ultimately that's, I think why the Wasaic project is so special to me because we're always just making, Yeah, like I don't, it's not how many people come to the festival it's that that doesn't really matter. It's that we get to do it. It's the what it's like to put it on. We get to do that with the people that we've worked with over the years. I mean, we've had extraordinary interns that have turned into full-time employees. Shannon Finnegan's <laughs> another one. I mean, just like that has actually in hindsight been sort of the greatest pleasure mm-hmm. of doing this type of thing is the relationships that we've been able to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that sort of 
what is the goal? What's the measure of enjoyment vein? I was just doing a career day for my alma mater and, you know, sitting with a table of students for a few hours and sort of rotating through students. And, you know, part of what I was <laughs> railing at them about was creating your own success structure oh, yeah. that, that, you know, you need to define your own goals because if you're like, oh, you know, success is a retrospective at MoMA, you know, cool. You might be disappointed. But like you, you should probably <laughs> yes. have some like small, medium, large goals in between. you probably more disappointed by what that meant and what that actually felt like when you oh, got there. Right. Even if you, I mean, I've spoken to plenty there. of artists who've gotten what they wanted and felt a big letdown afterwards because this, this was the pinnacle? This was it? Right. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm sorry. I, no, it's fine. I, I try to do this as a practice with our events, and I some most of the time forget, but when I am able to remember to do it, it's really fun, which is to kind of create a small, medium, large goal for every event mm-hmm. and then celebrate them. Yeah, I mean, it sort of sounds like so new agey hippie self-help bullshit, but it's, <laughs> it's it not. feels good. No, you know? because what's happening otherwise is you're essentially not setting a goal and then you're always disappointed Right. <laughs> because you, you're like, why don't I feel that emotional high? Like <laughs> Bowie and I went skiing yesterday with our three-year-old and five-year-old, right? So we went to sort of, it was really cold and I just, in the way I was like, let's just talk about what success is. It's a half an hour if it goes well. And it, it went better than that, but like, it's like we get out there, we get it done, we do it a couple of times, they're happy, that's success. And I think that making sort of achievable goals for yourself and then sticking to your response when you get them is mm-hmm. really important. And and marking those moments for yourself or with others. Yeah. You know, like in the festivals, like whoever's working the front desk, I always say, text me as soon as you sell a piece of art because I want to know and I want to yeah. be psyched. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think the other thing that sort of happened along that stuff is in terms of us doing more is that it helped take some of the pressure off the singular huge pop of success and it turned it into something else or like an example of it not being successful is say um, our big day of the festival Saturday gets rained out. We've been fundraising all year. We've been curating. We've been getting everyone on site and we see uh, 10% of the people that were supposed to come come. That is hugely disappointing. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, like the way that we combat that is not by renting a huge indoor space. It's by doing more, by being available all the time. And I think that that's one of the things that we learned from the lantern was that we were open all the time. And so people started to access us and access sort of our value structure and things like that in a way that felt consistent and safe and regular. And, that sort of helped push the Wasaic project into doing more like that and going more year round and focusing on trying to find things for kids to do in the winter, which actually, as it turns out, was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, we were competing with all kinds of people during the summer, but we were basically competing against nobody in the winter. <laughs> um, and, that, and that was not something that we were like smart enough to figure out. It sort of we had to arrive there through these other processes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. by asking questions yeah. with our community partners who we respect as equals and their ideas as equals, not just like, oh, we're both good people. Great. I'll do something for you. You know, no. What do you need? You know, look, these are the resources that I have. How are they useful to you? You know, what are the resources that you have? What can we both bring to the table that's different? That was an interesting lesson in collaborating that Bowie and I got from, I think it was Kevin McCoy came and spoke at RISD and he said a successful collaborator does not try to make their collaborator as good as they are at whatever they're good at. Mm. You have to celebrate what the other person is better than you at and then just be psyched to do the things that you're both good at. 
Right. So collaboration doesn't mean there is equal participation of a similar thing. It Correct. means opening it, opening yourself up, opening up your space to what other people do well. Right. Yeah. What what kind of uh, like things equity, did that... Equity, not equality. <laughs> yes. Like... What, what kind of things did that bring in? Anything that kind of surprised you or... Well, something that it relates to really directly is that we have three co-executive directors. We have a very non-traditional executive structure. And one of the things that's fabulous about that is that we all get to sort of shine with our own strengths and we all contribute to a something better than would be uh, mm-hmm. if it was just one of us. And I think that we sort of practice that spirit of collaboration all the time. And there's some other benefits too, like you can pass things off. You can say like, Hey, I'm re- I've hit a wall here. Can you jump in on this? Or right. can you take a pass at this? And we all are made better through that process. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. We, we worked with a nonprofit consultant for a little while trying to sort of remake our budget. And at the beginning he was just like, I don't know. I don't know about this structure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And as he got to know us and worked with us a bunch, he was sort of like, I'm going to start recommending these alternative structures because I can see how they can be really, really positive wow. and they allow for a much more unique engagement. And to be honest, I think it's a different experience for our employees too. Certainly more, more interesting. I don't know. It's certainly more confusing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some but I, of the, you know. Yeah, they sort of are able to get support from all of us and we're able to sort of put forward our strengths on equal footing rather than saying like, oh, you know, I'm the executive director and Jeff is my like community liaison. You know, it's like that's not equal footing, even if right. the work is equally important. You know, it, not to say that that's what's, you know, the relationship, but. Wait, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> there, there really is. Um, all this time. <laughs> It's funny, people are really much more willing to do that kind of collaboration outside of work. You know, if you throw a dinner party and everybody says, oh, what can I bring? It's like, I have no problem saying like, oh, bring your salad, you know, or Mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, I hear your desserts are really good. Can you bring a pie? Or someone's always willing to do the dishes and it's like, like, the dishwasher's kind of a low person on the totem pole normally, right? (laughs) Right. Kind of, yeah, that sort of celebrating of these kind of equally important but different skills and contributions. I think that's something we excel at. Is it the Tillman's book? If one thing's important, everything's important. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We got off of the, um, the school program a little bit. What, what grade levels are you doing with the schools? K through adult Uh, in the schools, K through high school. Mm -hmm. And is that year round now? Or is that, do you do things? We're we're not in the schools every day, Mm -hmm. but we are in the schools every season. So, um, depending on the partner that we're working with, that'll be anywhere from, you know, one to five units a year and a unit might be a day or Mm -hmm. might be five days in a row. So it's really kind of working with the teacher, Tara developing those relationships, seeing what they need in the classroom and how we can fit in and be most supportive. You know, some teachers really have a very clear agenda about what they want to do all year. We don't really fit in. They just want kind of exposure for their kids and a sort of low dose. And some teachers are really excited to develop curriculum collaboratively. And there's some great overlap with our community partner, Northeast Community Center, that does more after-school programs. And we bring our artists up to them for after-school programs. And they bring their kids down to us for after-school programs sometimes. There's sort of a nice um, combination with that. Um, they provide transportation for their kids, which is probably the number one challenge in this rural community after money, money, money. Sure. But they also have social workers on staff, and so they can employ more significant social infrastructure, Absolutely. and we can bring in more programming. And so it's a really, really happy partnership from that standpoint. Yeah. And you have this new space that I saw. Um, so how, how often do kids come to you? So that's, uh, it's open on the weekends. Um, mm. And so it's a drop-in space on Saturdays and Sundays. So it's all year round. And it's 
generally speaking, projects that are based on whatever shows up at that time. Mm -hmm. So there's a way for parents to walk through with their kids and then they can come down and kind of do something in relationship to that. Uh, We also have two summer camps uh, that are in separate weeks. They culminate in sort of different exciting (laughs) performances, which are always fun. And that's also an evolving component for us. So um, one of the summer camps came by way of a parent saying, hey, you know, there's this down week where everyone has to work in between school and this next town camp starting. Could you guys come and think up something? Uh, And that's been something we've been able to do. Uh, But then we're also nimble in other ways. And sort of that's become a more institutionalized sort of uh, program. Last year, we were asked by the uh, public high school if we could put on their musical. Hmm. Um, we said, well, I don't know if we can do a musical, but we did do a play. Um, and you know, we brought in artists to do the sets, artists to do the costumes. We hired a director. We went through and redid all their lighting and fixed everything so it was all working again. And we were able to pull off an incredibly inclusive, almost full school sort of play. Wow. That's not something we have the energy necessarily to do every year, but it was nice to be able to be asked. It was nice to be able to respond and make sure that something was going to happen in a scenario where nothing was going to happen had Mm. we not done something like that. So um, that type of relationship is really, really important to us. Yeah. So Eve, how much time do you split between here and Brooklyn now? So my husband and I and our kids are up here full time in the summer for three months, which mm-hmm. next summer will only be two and a half full time because my daughter's starting public school and oh. it'll go in really well into June. How old are your kids? Two and four, almost three and four. Okay. And you said three and five, Jeff? Yeah, almost four and six. Yeah, we four alternated okay. <laughs> we for did. four years. We did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> which was brutal. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. But also really nice to have three yeah. at the helm. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. <laughs> there was a lot of tag teaming going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were talking before about the, you know, the idea of sort of just sort of integrating everything into our lives and all. And, and your your practice involves uh, murals a lot, right? Yeah. Um, so the murals are collaborative with my husband. We haven't done a lot since our kids were born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Parent reality check. Yes. Um, we did do one here in, in Wasaic on um, the side of a house of... Uh, a couple of artists who are residency alums who bought a house in town and Josh and I painted the side of their house, which was really fun mm-hmm. and is still up. I, we do murals together. I make ceramic sculptures. I make silkscreen prints here in our shop in the summers. Part of my life also is working with both of my parents' practices who are both artists. My mom passed away in the 90s and I mm. manage her estate with a really incredible estate director who's a photographer. Your mom? Who's Marianne Unger. Mm-hmm. She was an abstract sculptor and that's been an incredibly interesting experience more on that some other time and um, (laughs) my dad's a photographer who is still living and still working and um, after my experience or concurrent to my experience of managing a deceased artist parents work I decided to get involved in dad's work earlier so that I wouldn't be stuck with another one of these fucking monsters (laughs) When he dies, because he's got another at least 30 years in him. So we were wait, like, what did real- I miss? The monster? Well, okay. So <laughs> my mom was a large scale abstract sculptor. So uh-huh. there are like 30 large scale sculptor sculptures that my family owns. Oh. What do you do with them? Yes. You can do a thousand hours on artist estates. We won't get dough down that road uh-huh. right now. But it's a big pain in the ass. It's exciting and fun. And it's been amazing to like leverage her reputation to meet amazing curators who would like never give me the time of day or maybe now would conceivably for like two minutes because of the Wasaic project. But that's been really fun introducing this sort of 
more established group of curators and um, museum people to the Wasaic project that's been like, you know, talking about that kind of siloing, you know, for my first year or two working with her estate, it was like, I'd meet with someone and just talk about her work. And then it was like, wait a second, like, this is bananas. You would love this other thing that I do, you know, check out the Wasaic project. And if they're like, yeah, great. We don't talk about it. And if they're like, oh, amazing. A lot of them have come up here to visit and been visiting critics, which is an amazing door to open for the artists that we're working with. So that's been that's been fun. Anyway, that's another sort of piece. Yeah, of but that's really important. And that is a big part of what we've been talking about is is leveraging the entire community is bringing the whole community and, you know, in, and and breaking down those silos and all. Yeah. You were saying then uh, um, you do uh, the collaborative murals with your husband and your father is Jeff Biddle. Jeffrey Biddle. Yeah. Jeffrey Biddle. So the book that you were showing was called Alphabet. Alphabet City. Alphabet City. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's an amazing book. He published that in the 90s with UC Berkeley Press, and it's photographs from the 70s and 80s of Alphabet City in New York, in New York. so mm-hmm. avenues A, B, C, and D, or yeah. Lois Saida, um, which when he was photographing was a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood. I was there, yes. <laughs> um, where did you grow up? Well, I worked in the Lower East Side on Forsyth and Houston for uh, off and on for a period of 15 to 18 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Where yeah. where were you working? I was working at a science stock photo agency called Fundamental Photographs. Oh, cool. My parents met in the library at Magnum, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> they were both working there. I think that my mom hired my dad, and then it was like workplace harassment ensued. <laughs> From I think emanating from the senior employee. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's all oh, it's all you know mixed up together mm-hmm. in a really fun way you know sort of like i think if i you'd asked me about this like seven years ago i would have been like much more frustrated Mm -hmm. because there was this sort of like i I mean how do you even keep these things separate it's fucking impossible Mm -hmm. you know and then once it was like well let's just knock that shit down that really became much more fun yeah i think a lot of what's exciting about what we get to do now is just that we get to do so many different things. And that's what I always loved about photography was the sort of like field trip aspect, kind of mm-hmm. similar to the podcast. You get to Absolutely. meet a lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, I think for we enjoy that. That's fundamentally something we really, and we Absolutely. like to be inspired by other people and, um, and we like to give back too. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so now my art practice, you know, I, I work in a collaborative studio on Wednesday mornings in Gowanus and that's where my ceramic practice is focused half day a week which is great i got a lot done in that right. half day and it's me and a bunch of elderly ladies who i adore <laughs> it's, it's a like whole a bunch really of wisdom nurturing environment it's great i really love it um a couple of friends have been like oh that sounds really fun i'm like i'm not even gonna tell you what the name of it is hi <laughs> so i want that one to myself <laughs> for now yeah, and then in the summers, I've been taking advantage of having a master printer here in Wasaic and, oh, and work nice. scheduling about a week throughout the summer um, to work with our master printers for the past four or five years, which has been really, really fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even giving yourself permission to work with the resources that we've created here was a leap. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of what's been really hard for us is this division and and some of it's artificial and you know like do we put ourselves in shows do we not oh, yeah, are we you yeah. know we're curating we're, we're doing all this work to promote other artists and we've yes. created all these connections <laughs> are we allowed to use them or no and um no that that really is a uh, something i think about a lot i really do i mean uh, i don't 
I right now my I kind of gave myself a rule that I wouldn't put myself in my own gallery. That would be crass. That would be weird. Uh, but you know, I'm, I am you know giving a lot of other people's shows, and you know, it, it wouldn't I would not say no to <laughs> someone offering <laughs> me a show somewhere else. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, that is a real dilemma. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I often think like, oh, so I can't show in the Wasaic Project. Where can I show right now? Like the <laughs> coffee shop? I'm like, come on. Right. <laughs> crazy. Like, yeah, yeah, but I mean, we have put ourselves in the shows to a sort of modest no, degree and, and not, I, not every year and only right, when right. it makes sense Certainly and only when all three of us shows. agree. No. But I can um, imagine it. Like, you know, I, I can imagine doing something community-based and being involved. You know, I, I think it also, it would, on the other sort of spectrum of that, it's, there's also something a little bit uh, condescending about the idea of, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have you all do this. I'm not going to be a part of it. Right. I'm just right. So there is something to be said for also being part of the thing you're making. I also and think offering that the other community people. that you've created right. actually wants to hear from you in that way. They yes. want to. And, and that's something that I sort of forget until we, we do it. And then, you know, I'll sell some work and I'll sell it to someone that I know. And they're like, I, of course I want to support you. Right. Of course I want to, you know. Yeah. And I, and I, I enjoy that, but that, but it's, it's a, it's a weird relationship and it's, yeah, I think something we're getting better at. It, I think so too. It's a little bit of that, uh, modesty, Catholic, Jewish guilt, whatever, whatever you grew yeah, up I think, with. I think we just, we're getting better at self-evaluation <laughs> right. instead of imagining what everyone else is thinking about right. us. <laughs> so Eve, you grew up in a, in a family of, of artists. So there probably was no strange transition when you s- decided to set out to be an artist, but. Jeff, what was your uh, experience like growing up? What kind of li- family life did you? Uh, oh, grow up I mean, in? when I decided that I wanted to be an artist, my folks were not terribly supportive of that. Mm. Um, they're both psychologists. They've both been married four times each. Aunts and uncles were psychologists. <laughs> Grandmother was. She got wow. a degree in psychology. She <laughs> okay. was a Two psychologists, lots of <laughs> divorces. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Ohio and in Kansas. So, congratulations. You've made it to this far. I, I have. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's going fine. A, a lot of my life has been lived in rebellion, but in a positive way. Um, but, you know, like I'd, I'd gone to college. I dropped out of college. I wasn't particularly interested. And I fell in love with photography. And that's ultimately what sort of drove me back to uh, get, finishing my degree degree and then going to graduate school and um you went I, to RISD I went to RISD yeah I um I almost didn't bring a car to Rhode Island because I thought they had a subway oh <laughs> I mean it was uh yeah yeah whoops uh so I mean I mean that's basically basically I got out of Kansas by going to graduate school mm-hmm. and you know I I mean it was sort of the I had a I went to a commuter school for undergrad and wasn't particularly inspiring. It was just kind of what it was. And and RISD was kind of like, it was a really transformative experience for me. I met so many people that went on to help us form sort of the basis of the Wasaic Project in terms of the community of people we would draw upon to curate or to populate the residencies with. Michelle Lefteris was certainly was one of them. And mm-hmm. and they 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 sort of showed me a new way. It was, it was just so inspiring to be surrounded by so many intelligent, kind, creative people. And, um, I think that has deeply impacted where I ended up. You know, I basically decided that's how I want to live. I want to live in a community like that. Hmm. Um, so it's been strange. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. It's been good. It's been good. <laughs> yeah. And you went to Williams Eve. Yes. What was that experience like? It was really fun. I, you know, I had I went to boarding school, so I'd already had four years of school up mm-hmm. in a small New England town, um, and I was psyched to do that again. 
um, and psyched when it was all over. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the art building, in the studio art building, despite being an art history major. I think I took more credits in studio than I did in art history in my major, but um, I somehow thought that art history would be a more practical major, but of course my degree just says art. Mm. I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and I met my husband at Williams, which was the best part of Williams. <laughs> <laughs> just by there being many other wonderful people and things. Uh, and I met Bowie, too. Oh, yeah. So the kind of seeds of the Wasaic Project were really? maybe planted freshman year. You yeah. Know? I mean, we were certainly weren't planning in that way. But... but you guys were in an arts collaborative. Yeah. You know, we weren't super close in college, but we were friends. And senior year, we sort of had this group of five or six women that did some art projects together. And we did a, Bowie and I actually did a collaborative installation in college. And then we kind of fell out of touch. And I was just writing about this. We have to write our profiles for the website. And I was sort of writing this this story about how Bowie and I kind of got back in touch was because one of the women who was a year younger than us in this collective moved to Brooklyn after college and started um, the Red Tin Shack or the work. I guess it was Red. She called it Red Tin Shack. And then it devolved into work gallery and um, or maybe it was work gallery at the Red Tin Shack. Anyway, she got a grant from the college. She started this little gallery space and it was awesome. It was like so just like seeing a young artist have an idea and just fucking do it. It was like, oh, okay, cool. Like I'm a doer. I can do shit like that too. And um, Emily had been, this was Emily Driscoll and she'd been talking about getting, getting the girls back together, maybe doing a show down there. Um, and she was hit and killed by a car in Brooklyn oh. in this sort of like totally fluke accident. It was, she was jaywalking, crossed out between two cars and someone was backing up. Oh, geez. And it was like just dead on the scene really random mm. and Bowie had been in LA and I'd been in New York and we reconnected at her funeral. Oh, wow. And got really drunk at an, at the Irish wake outside of Boston. And we're like, ah, we should do something. Thanks, Emily. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then we like, didn't do anything. And then Bowie went to graduate school and was back in New York in the sort of January term off with some independent project that fell through and she called me was like uh so do you, you want to like do something <laughs> and i was like yeah let's do it um and we just sort of jumped into it and sort of i think it took us three weeks to put together our first project it was really fun mm. so that that connection to boy came out of williams too and these other sort of you know this kind of like rallying around tragedy kind of like our you know our galvanizing of the relationship with the volunteer fire company i mean there's yeah you know, nobody wants tragedy, but if you can make something good come from it. Absolutely. It certainly can level the playing field and reminds us all that we're human. I mean, that also like children is something that I think we just continually are taught in this community through experience that, that that's how we all end up connecting. Hmm. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything going on? Any appeals you want to make? Uh, tell people how to get involved. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, <laughs> When is this airing Yeah, again? when does this come out? Because that'll impact our... <laughs> that is, absolutely. Um, so this will be in the range of uh, in about four weeks. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So we have three major community festivals coming up. One is on May 12th. Jeff's going to look it up. It's um, our annual community day in collaboration with the Volunteer Fire Department. And we do a townwide parade that includes artist-made floats, costumes, 
kids, uh, fire companies from neighboring communities and our community. Nice. It's really fun. And it's also the day of the summer show opening. Mm, May 12th. Yes. Okay. So nailed it. May 12th. Saturday, May 12th. Um, and then we have live music at the bar in, in the evening. And it's a great day. Really, really fun. And then August 4th, Saturday, August 4th, we're doing our annual summer festival, art, music, dance, film, which is just a fantastic weekend to come up. It's so fun. A really kind of magical town-wide event. Mm. And then Saturday, October 27th is our Haunted Mill and Monsters Ball. <laughs> and we install all seven floors of an 8,000 square feet of gallery space in commissioned artist-made spooky installations. That's oh. more of a psychological thriller. <laughs> Great. I mean, what we, the feedback we've gotten from artists, which is what we had hoped for, is this is it's this super fun opportunity to do something that like maybe relates to your practice, but doesn't have the pressure to be you know mm-hmm. your style or whatever, right. and is really fun. They've got a little commissioning funds. They get like a two week free residency, and this amazing party where a thousand people in costumes come through and encounter their installation it's an incredible opening and the variety of people that come through i don't think we see matched in any other event it's i I mean masked ball i mean i talk about leveling the playing field and then we do a a monster's ball costumes required required oh yeah at the bar well what you know what's amazing about the whole space is how malleable it is how you're able to shift walls and move things and just make all kinds of different installations. I mean, there's trap doors and floors. There's all kinds of things. It's, it's really quite, an, quite a space. I think initially we felt really kind of restricted a little bit by the fact it was not white-walled, but it was everyone so inspired by it, including us. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's been, in, in certain moments, a push to sort of clean it up. And there's something that's just so fabulous about the rawness of it. Mm-hmm. And it allows people to continue to engage and be inspired by the character of these spaces. Um, and I, you know, I hope in the future we have more spaces to explore and keep things fresh. And I think we will. I think so too. And I would encourage any artist to reach out, apply to the open calls and come up and volunteer. You know, any application is bolstered by getting to know the space a little bit and, you know, even if you're just interested in coming up for an event and volunteering, you're going to meet an incredible group of people. The artists that we're working with, the musicians, the dancers, the filmmakers, the other people who are coming, the sort of cultural appreciators. It's um, a happy soup. Yeah, we're, we're on the last stop of the Metro North Harlem line. Um, and it's from Grand Central. It's like $17 off peak or something. Well, like I just that. drove up from Jersey. It was actually a very easy drive. I mean, and it's beautiful up here and you can hit dia beacon on the way and yeah in the summer months you can buy an mta getaways package <laughs> and you save on peak and off peak train tickets <laughs> as well as giving a five dollar donation within your ticket price to the wasaic project oh Ta-da! wow there you go <laughs> that was our psa <laughs> well it's actually totally a sweet deal though so oh yeah so buy the getaway ticket <laughs> God, I feel like I could talk to to you guys for for another hour, but we all have kids. We all have two kids, <laughs> and we uh, shit shows at uh, home to yes. get home to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Somebody has to be there when they come home or pick them up. Uh, well, thank you both very much. This has been really great. Same. Thank you for taking the Our time pleasure. to come up here. We really appreciate it. And thank you for that fantastic lunch and your You're beautiful welcome. home and everything else. <laughs> all part of the work. <laughs> That's right. It is. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.